Pentagon uh, press secretary John Kirby talked about that that Russian convoy uh, stalled miles outside the city. I just want to play some of that for our viewers. That convoy that we talked about also has been stalled and slowed. And quite frankly, a big reason for that has been the Ukrainian resistance. They were able to hit some of those lead vehicles and get it to stop. What's the latest that you've been hearing and seeing? Well, the Pentagon, Anderson, is saying that uh, that not only is it stalled, uh, but that it hasn't really moved, uh, obviously, in, in, in the past few days since the weekend. It's uh, stuck about 15 miles outside of Kyiv. Uh, and on top of the efforts that the Ukrainians uh, and special forces in particular have made against uh, those vehicles, there was also a bridge that was blown up uh, that has caused them to stop, that has prevented their advance. But there are a number of factors that have gone into the fact that this convoy is pretty much at a standstill. I mean, think about how many days that we've been we've been talking about this and it stretched way out and initially it was three miles now it's stretched way out to 40 miles you've heard military experts and and former officials talking about them being sitting ducks out there and so we have seen these ukrainian forces managing uh to pick off a number of those vehicles um given the fact that they are so stretched out and that they are relatively far from supply lines we also know uh that the russians have had a hard time refueling and, and getting food. And so the Pentagon believes that they are they are reassessing that it may be too soon uh, to say that they aren't making much progress. You still have a formidable amount of firepower in, in terms of the troops, the armored vehicles and the artillery uh, that are in that convoy. And, and so there is a real concern that they will play a, a significant part of an encirclement of Kiev, which the Ukrainians believe uh, is still Moscow's main priority. They said that just today, uh, that the top priority is still to encircle Kiev and to break through the resistance. So not only only do we have that convoy that is north of Kyiv. We also have uh, Russian forces to the west uh, that the Ukrainians claim have been pushed back. We have seen su- some success by the Ukrainians against the Russian forces there. And the Ukrainians believe that they are calling up uh, more resources uh, to, to replenish uh, their, uh, their troops uh, and their weaponry there. And Anderson, that is a very important point because we keep hearing about the successes of the Ukrainians uh, against the Russians. But the fact of the matter is, is the the Russians have a a much, much deeper reserve uh, of power than the Ukrainians do. That's why the Ukrainians have been calling on everybody, not just in the country, but from outside the country to come help them fight. The Pentagon believes that some 92 percent of the pre-positioned combat power of the Russians is now in Ukraine and that they still have the vast, vast majority of that combat power still in reserve. Uh, So despite the fact that the Russians have not made much progress uh, here in Kyiv, there is still so much they can do. And Anderson, the belief is that if they are, that because they may be frustrated on the ground, because they are getting pushed back on the ground, that they may step it up from the air. So there is real concern, real fear that we may see, soon see more significant aerial bombardment, not just of Kyiv, but uh, of, of other areas uh, by Russia's uh, helicopters uh, and jets. Anderson. Yeah. Uh, Fred, in Moscow, NATO, uh, you've been watching uh, Russian weapons and manpower uh, pour into mm-hmm. Ukraine now for uh, this entire invasion. You're in Moscow now. Uh, U.S. officials saying that you're using cluster bombs in Ukraine. Vladimir Putin is saying everything is going according, according to plan. Uh, what's the latest that, that you've been seeing today? 
Yeah. Yeah. Uh, look, and the NATO secretary general obviously also saying today that uh, NATO believes that the Russians have been using cluster bombs. The Russians have said nothing about that so far, but the statements that we're getting from the Russian military and also from the Russian uh, government uh, remain pretty unequivocal. They keep saying that they are not targeting civilians, not targeting civilian areas and, and don't want civilians to come to harm. Now, what we've been hearing from the Russian military is they um, accuse the Ukrainian military of essentially hiding weapons in civilian areas. And as the Russian government and the Russian military put it, using uh, civilians as human shields in some of those areas as well. So that's uh, the, the official line that we're getting from Russia. And as far as those munitions are concerned, obviously, Anderson, one of the things that we saw when we were down in Belgorod, right across from the front line in Kharkiv, was the Russians uh, move a, a rocket launcher towards the front line that uses or that shoots a thermobaric tipped uh, rockets. And that's certainly something that's been criticized uh, by the United States. We can't obviously confirm whether or not the Russians actually used that rocket launcher, but we do know that it was moved towards the front line and is obviously stationed in that area or was stationed in the area uh, around the Kharkiv front line. At the same time, though, Anderson, as, as the Russians say that they are not causing any, any civilian casualties and that everything is going according to plan, as Vladimir Putin said, they are also cracking down on critical speech towards this, uh, this operation. Uh, today, there was a law that was passed by the Russian uh, lower house of parliament and then the upper house of parliament as well, seemingly trying to fast track all of this, which essentially makes it illegal to say anything critical about the Russian military and this operation uh, or anything that would sort of induce sanctions uh, against Russia. And the penalties are pretty uh, massive. It's up to 15 years in prison or around $13,000, which is a huge amount of, uh, of money here in Russia. Vladimir Putin still has to sign that law, but it certainly is already something that's having a chilling effect on journalists here in this country. Of course, many of the uh, critical media already have been shut down here in Russia. The, the BBC, for instance, today said it was ceasing operations in the Russian Federation. And just a couple of minutes before we went to air, Novaya Gazeta, of course, the managing editor of with, just won the Nobel Peace Prize, is saying that it's taking down all of its content related to Russia's military operation simply because they're not sure whether their journalists are going to have to go to jail for a very long time if they keep reporting on it, Andrew. Yeah, I mean, it's all obviously aimed at, at, uh, at journalism and, and, and accurate coverage, because right now everything that's imposing sanctions on Russia are the statements of Vladimir Putin. Um, so he he's actually should be subject to that law. Uh, Alex Marquardt, uh, Fred Plankton, appreciate it. Now back to Anna in New York. And Anderson, this is a growing global crisis. When you think of all the refugees that are now ending up in uh, other countries, more than a million Ukrainians have fled the escalating hardships of war and are escaping to neighboring countries. CNN's Sarah Seidner is at one such crossing just inside Poland along the border with Ukraine. Sarah, what are you seeing today? We're in Medica, Poland, and just over my left shoulder uh, is the border with Ukraine. We are seeing families, uh, some of whom just crossed by us as you were talking. I'm going to have Jerry just show you. They have uh, finally gotten some transport to get out of the frigid cold. You can see that they are carrying very few things. Uh, most people have just one bag or one backpack, lots of children. Some kids who are in nine or ten um, coming over the border. It's uh, it's slow when it comes to the numbers, but as you're seeing, it's all day and all night long people coming through here. And now Poland has about half of the one million plus people who have made their way from the war in Ukraine 
into another country. Poland bearing the brunt of that because of its proximity and because Poland has opened its doors uh, much wider, um, allowing people, for example, not just to drive, they can walk, and however they can get here, uh, they will be allowed over the border of the EU and Poland, assuring people no matter what their residency is or what their passport says, uh, they will be allowed to cross away and out of war. But we are seeing something very interesting, and that is we are seeing not only people streaming out of Ukraine, but we are seeing a few people going in. Listen. This is a full three months of food. Without I know we were having some issues with your signal, but I've been able to hear you loud and clear. I just want to ask you then, if there are some 500,000 uh, uh, people who are then crossing the border, are there in Poland right now, what, what happens to them after they cross? I mean, longer term, not just within 24 hours, but, you know, in the weeks to come, where are they going? What's going to happen to them? That's the thing, and that's why you see so much panic on people's faces, so much sorrow on people's faces, because, frankly, most of them have no idea. We met a family last night who literally had the clothes on their back. They had nothing. They had panicked. There were bombings very close to them. They had gone into a shelter and literally ran out of that country as fast as they could get here, and they got here eventually by train. And it was just a matter of trying to figure out who they could go to. They said they were going to a friend's house, the friend uh, barely even knowing that they were going to show up the same night. Uh, there isn't a lot of planning that you can do. I mean, this has only been going on for a week and a few days. And so people don't know. Uh, some of them have been stuck in the train station for a couple of days trying to figure out their lives. One thing, though, we are hearing is that there are lots of people here in Poland and around Europe, Germany, Denmark, who are telling people they are welcome. They can come and stay in their personal homes, and wow. they'll give them transportation. ...but does have nuclear fuel inside. Ukraine's foreign minister tweeted, if it blows up, it will be 10 times larger than Chernobyl. Russians must immediately cease the fire, allow firefighters to establish a security zone. The plan had been inaccessible because firefighters were being shot at. No essential equipment was damaged, and the U.N. now says no radioactive material was released. Ukrainian President Zelensky pleaded with Europeans and their leaders to, quote, wake up, saying in part, we need to stop the Russian military immediately. Scream at your politicians. Ukraine has 15 nuclear power blocks. If there is an explosion, it is the end for all of us. The end of Europe, he said. Evacuation of Europe. Only immediate actions of Europe can stop the Russian military. Do not let Europe die from a nuclear catastrophe, end quote. Zelensky also spoke with President Biden and with British Prime Minister Boris Johnson, who said he will call for an emergency meeting now of the U.N. Security Council this morning. NBC News Chief Foreign Correspondent Richard Engel joins us from Kyiv. Richard, good morning. What more can you tell us about this nuclear plant and how close to danger Ukraine and all of Europe really was last night? So, uh, first, before I get to that, I'm at the train station here in Kiev, and we've been seeing people rushing to this station this morning, trying to get out of the city. Uh, there is some confusion here. The people aren't paying any tickets, so the trains are just running, but it's not a, people aren't sure exactly uh, where the trains are running, which tracks they should get on, which trains they should get on, but they are arriving with their families, with their parents, with their grandparents, with their pets, and they are getting on any train that will go west. 
past. Now, this is the second time that we've had a nuclear scare throughout this conflict. The first time was when there was fighting by the Chernobyl site, which was the, the former reactor, of course, that suffered that terrible meltdown. Uh, and now there was fighting at a working nuclear power plant and, the, and a building going uh, going up in flames uh, right next to it. Uh, according to uh, U.S. officials, they're not seeing any radiation leak, but Ukrainian officials are warning that every time there is fighting by one of these nuclear facilities and you have, uh, you have close fighting, artillery coming in, uh, that there is a serious danger that one of the facilities could be, could be damaged, destroyed, and it would have consequences for this country and, and all around the world, particularly Europe. And yeah, as you say, Richard, it was an adjacent building. The fire has been put out, but perilously close to that nuclear reactor. And yesterday, Richard, President Zelensky held a press conference. He called for a face-to-face -face meeting with Vladimir Putin. I want to show our viewers what you asked Zelensky. You had just mentioned that you want to talk to Vladimir Putin. Vladimir Putin has so far not been willing to meet with him. Do you have a message for him now? that Ukrainian cities are under attack. It's not about I want to talk with Putin. I think I have to talk with Putin. The world has to talk with Putin because there are no other ways to stop this war. That's why I have to. First of all, Richard, extraordinary circumstances. There are a sandbag bunker for that press conference. Do you expect Zelensky to actually meet with Vladimir Putin? Well, Vladimir Putin has made it quite clear he is not interested in meeting with Zelensky, that he considers Zelensky a neo-Nazi fascist leader, uh, which is a, a particularly insulting, uh, uh, insulting remark, considering Zelensky is Jewish. And just the other day, one of the Russian attacks fell on a, uh, on a site where 33,000 Jews were murdered during the Holocaust, a Holocaust memorial. Uh, Zelensky says he does not plan to leave this city, even as Ru Russian forces get closer. He desperately wants to meet with Putin. He said that Putin is the only person who can, uh, who can, who can end this war. But uh, when, when Putin spoke yesterday with, uh, with Francis Emmanuel Macron, he made it clear that the war is going to go forward, that it is going according to plan, and that he said he will go until the end of the mission. And he's made it clear that mission is getting rid of Zelensky, not talking to him. NBC's Richard Engel live for us this morning from Ukraine's capital city. Richard, thanks so much. So, Joe, you could hear an increased urgency yesterday and last night in President Zelensky's voice around this attack at the nuclear plant. He said they're ready to not only to control nuclear power around Europe, but perhaps to shut it down and perhaps to blow it up, whether accidentally or not. That fire is out, thank goodness, at the nuclear plant. But you can hear that Zelensky is begging now for more help from the West. Well, Zelensky obviously terrified, as are the people in Ukraine, and I, I would guess anybody reasonable and rational in Europe and across the world also concerned about the fact that Vladimir Putin is now uh, attacking nuclear power plants. Uh, it, it is a, a frightening scenario that, that continues to escalate. Let's go over to the, the maps of the big board and talk to Clint Watts. He's there for us, a former infantryman, now a distinguished research fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute. Also a national security analyst for NBC News and MSNBC. And Clint, let's start with that nuclear power plant. Show us where it is and the significance of its location. 
That's right, Joe. Zaporizhia is what we were talking about last night. A few key notes about it. We saw some video that you might have seen out on social media of a firefight in and around those reactors. What do the Russians want to do? They want to take control of the entire energy sector because they can use that when they're doing siege warfare like we're seeing in many cities around Ukraine to take control essentially of the power sources. But separately, the more important point might be psychological, injecting fear into audiences while we're trying to get to the bottom of what happened here last night. Is it safe? I would bet that Russian disinformation broadcast back at home is saying that this is the Ukrainians possibly using some sort of nuclear material or causing a blast. We saw that last week uh, when Chernobyl was taken back. The last thing I want to add, just from a military perspective, is we keep seeing these discussions of nuclear sites. Nuclear sites also have massive railheads. If you are an invading army with large armor formations, you're bogged down logistically and you want to move things very quickly over time, taking railheads, particularly those that are outside of cities, is extremely important. So there's another logistical component for them because they are not doing well on the roads right now. The other thing that I want to bring up here is while we've talked about the first week and two days, the Russians really struggling, Ukrainians overachieving, the Russians are now using that combat power to take hold. Several things have happened over the last 48 hours. First, this unit in Crimea, this is the peninsula they seized back in 2014. It has created a land bridge to its forces here in Donbass. Those forces now are surrounding this town here of Mariupol. Mika was showing some video there. This is total war, siege warfare, indirect fire, cutting off infrastructure. These folks are in for absolute disaster right now. Separately, Hassan, that's the other breakaway Mika was talking about. Hassan is essentially the mouth of the Dnieper River as it enters into the Black Sea. And there is a bridge here in Hassan which allows the Russian military to move to the western side of Ukraine. If they can do that, they can possibly march all the way to the Moldovan border, essentially sealing off this entire area here. There would be no sea resupply. There would be no way to get logistics in, and it allows the Russians then to start using things like landing crafts to essentially bring in more forces and more quickly in the south. Bringing it back to the bigger picture, I think that's where we're at this morning. We've been talking a lot about the convoy that has been stuck there up in the north, but I think there's some bigger things to think about. They tried this initial move right here, trying to get into Kyiv. You might remember a failed airborne assault, which seemed to have been attempt to take down and topple the government real early. That convoy, while bogged down, you're seeing them start to make gains in here through Chernaev. Chernaev, indirect fires, indiscriminate killing yesterday. Not particularly significant unless you're building up what we call a lodger head here. You want to take all of these rear areas. And so you probably heard Defense Press Secretary Kirby yesterday talking about these towns. If you are moving a massive army in and trying to take Kiev, you don't want to be fighting insurgents here in your rear area. That You want to secure your logistics bases. And that brings us to the end. They're now marching from the south and from the east. Their ultimate goal is to encircle Kiev and really cut off all resupply over the ground from Poland. So, Clint, let me ask you, uh, in, in the, the areas that are shaded pink, and I do find that an interesting color scheme for Russian troops, uh, in, uh, in the pink areas, uh, is that are those areas where the Russians have actually moved through, Russian troops have moved through, or would you say that those shaded areas are areas that they effectively control because as you know there's a big difference we we certainly found it 
founded out in Vietnam and then in Iraq and Afghanistan. It's one thing for your troops to move through and win battles and keep moving to uh, a city. It's quite another to control it. What, what, what are we looking at here when we look at this map? Yeah, severe miscalculation by the Russian army, Joe, across the board. They tried to move in with a very daunting sort of blitzkrieg-type attack. They didn't integrate their fires in their air, and they did not secure their rear area. These cities are going to be filled with insurgents. And interesting, I was on a discussion with John Nagel, who wrote the counterinsurgency manual. He mentioned hundreds of thousands of troops would be needed to secure this, which means that Putin's plan, while audacious, is highly flawed. What well, he's going to be facing and Clint, is... Clint, I, and that's what I wanted to, to bring up to you. And let's just, again, this... It's not wishful thinking. I know there's a lot of wishful thinking in the early days of the war, but can you explain to our viewers how there just are not enough? There are enough Russian troops to, to, to blow up buildings and, and, and kill a lot of people, cause a lot of misery, but they do not have enough troops to control a country this size, do they? Wherever they go, they're going to have insurgencies uh, coming up behind them, around them, uh, unless they flatten the entire country. And even then, you somehow feel, you, you somehow sense the Ukrainians are going to figure out a way to do what the Iraqis did to us in 2004, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9. Absolutely correct. I mean, in comparison, invasions are easy. Counterinsurgencies are extremely difficult. They found this out in Afghanistan. We found it out in Iraq. When you watch what they're doing here, they're trying to essentially just destroy major population centers in hopes of getting rid of any potential future insurgents. You heard negotiations yesterday about essentially creating pathways for people to leave the city. From the Russians' perspective, the fewer people that are in the city, the fewer potential insurgents over the horizon. And then they can just use direct fires, indirect fires to just cripple the, these cities. But that will not work. What we've seen from the Ukrainian people is this is an insurgent force. Not only are they very well trained, much better than we thought, they now are getting weapons like stingers, javelins, the in-law. All these anti-tank weapons are going in. Russian forces now also control Europe's largest nuclear plant after shelling the facility, which is located in southern Ukraine. A building adjacent to a nuclear reactor caught fire. It since has been extinguished. The plant had been inaccessible because firefighters were being shot at. No essential equipment was damaged, and the U.N. says no radioactive material was released. The U.S. Embassy in Kyiv tweeted just moments ago, quote, it is a war crime to attack a nuclear power plant. Joining us now, Pentagon Press Secretary, retired Rear Admiral John Kirby. Admiral Kirby, thanks so much for being with us this morning. Let's start right there with the attack on the nuclear power plant. Uh, do you have an assessment of the damage there? Is there any leaking radioactive material? And what do you say to Russia for going after the, Europe's largest nuclear power plant or any power plant? We're working closely with the Department of Energy, uh, Willie, to assess uh, the damage. Uh, we would agree with assessments so far this morning uh, that there is no, uh, there's no leakage, there's no radioactive leakage right now, and that the, the the fire's out and the damage seems to have been fairly limited. But to your other question, this speaks to the recklessness uh, and the, the dangerous atmosphere inside Ukraine caused by this unprovoked uh, war of aggression, this unprovoked invasion by Russia, and the fact that regardless of how it's Started, uh, that the Russians have not been very discriminate in, in the way they're going about uh, this military campaign. Uh, they, they, don't, they aren't known for, for accuracy and for precision, uh, and, and certainly this is an example of just how dangerous this can get, not just for uh, the people of Ukraine, but for the European continent. 
So, Admiral Kirby, there have been calls, increased calls just in the last couple of days as we've watched Russia now continue its slow push, now accelerating across uh, Ukraine, for the United States to do more. Can you speak to what's happening right now, and is there a possibility that there could be stepped-up military intervention from the United States as this seems to get worse by the day? Sure. Let me tell you what we are doing now, because it's a great question, Willie. We are expediting uh, the shipment of additional uh, security assistance to the Ukrainian armed forces. In just the last few days, more and more uh, ammunition, more and more weapon systems, uh, we have helped flow into that country. We're also helping coordinate uh, the, the flow of shipments from other countries as well. Uh, there's a, this is a real international effort, and, and we know that, uh, that that material is getting into the right hands. Secretary Austin spoke to his Ukrainian counterpart just a couple of days ago, and, and Minister Reznikov made it clear not only that they appreciate this material, but that, that it is being used, it is getting into uh, the, the hands of the of Ukrainian armed forces and, and fighters there. So we know that's happening, and we're going to continue to look for ways to accelerate that aid and assistance. The other thing we're doing is making sure that we can bolster the NATO alliance. We're, we're flowing additional forces to NATO's eastern flank, both in the north and in the south, and we're going to look for ways to continue to do that as needed. We're going to make it very clear to Mr. Putin uh, that we will defend every inch of NATO territory. The other thing that we've done in just the last couple of days, Willie, is stand up a deconfliction channel. It's headquartered there uh, in Germany at the European Command Headquarters. But we now have a direct way of communicating with the Russian Ministry of Defense on a daily basis in case there's a need to deconflict things like airspace. So, so uh, Admiral, uh, thanks so much for being with us. I wanted to ask you, you say every inch of, of, yeah. of, uh, of soil. Uh, so, mm -hmm. I... I, I had a, a former administration official tell me that uh, with the United States seeming to be cowed by every uh, nuclear threat uh, that Putin makes it right now it's Ukraine. But what are we going to do when Putin says he's going into Est Estonia next or he's going into Latvia or he's going into Lithuania? I have sure. reporters on the ground saying that people in those countries are frightened. They don't they think that we might stand up for Poland, but we won't stand mm -hmm. up for them. Will you make a clear an unequivocal uh, a statement here today uh, uh, that, that based on the policy, the Pentagon policy, the White House policy, the administration policy, that an attack on Estonia is an attack on NATO and will be met with a full force uh, of, of, of NATO's military might. We take our commitment to Article 5 very seriously. An attack on one NATO nation is an attack on all. And that is why we have continued to flow additional resources and capabilities to NATO's eastern flank to be able to do that if needed. Now, hopefully it won't come to that, Joe. Uh, but if a NATO country is attacked, the United States will absolutely come to the defense of it. You know, Joe, that uh, the first and only time uh, that Article 5 was invoked was in our defense on 9-11, where NATO came to our defense. Uh, we, we remember that here at the Pentagon. And we're absolutely committed to that going forward. Again, hopefully it won't come to that. And one of the reasons why we stood up this deconfliction channel is to make sure we have a direct line to the Russian Ministry of Defense so that they know and they can see very clearly and plainly how seriously we take that commitment. So, Admiral, a similar question that I asked to Admiral Stavridis, but you talk about the uh, resources that are coming in, uh, extra supplies, aid, money, yeah. weapons. Will there ever be enough in the hands of Ukrainians to make them capable of stabilizing their country, or are we just watching Ukraine's demise in slow motion? 
We're going to continue to flow as much security assistance to Ukraine as we can, as fast as we can. Uh, and I would note, and I, I think Admiral Stavridis talked about this as well, the Ukrainians are fighting back. They are defending their country, and they're doing it quite effectively. Uh, the Russian advance up in the north continues to be stalled and frustrated by Ukrainian resistance, which has been extraordinarily effective. Now, look, we all have to be clear-eyed about this. The Russians have the numbers advantage. They have more capability available to them. They built it up over the last several months, more than 150,000 troops, more than 120 battalion tactical groups. Uh, they have a lot uh, of advantages right now. Uh, so we're going to we do whatever we can to continue to make sure that Ukraine can defend itself. Uh, do, do we expect more troop movements uh, just as a show of force following up on uh, the last question? Uh, uh, sure. Poland, I, I Lithuania, I, Latvia, Estonia. Are we are, are we expecting to send more forces in there just just as a show of support? Well, President Biden has already ordered uh, more than 10,000 troops just from the United States to go to Europe to bolster that eastern flank. We certainly wouldn't take off the table that there could be additional deployments of U.S. troops from the United States to NATO territory. The other thing we're doing, Joe, is moving stuff around. So we've taken troops out of Germany and we moved them uh, down to Romania. We've moved some of them up to the Baltics. Aircraft. There are dozens now of NATO aircraft doing policing missions over NATO airspace, and that includes additional fighter strike fighter aircraft from the United states some from the navy uh, some from the air force f-35s uh, we're very much in the air over the airspace and we're going to continue to talk to our allies about additional capabilities they might need i want to stress that this is very much about nato it's about the west it's about this alliance it's not just about the united states hey admiral good morning it's jonathan lemire you mentioned the stalled uh, Russian movements up north, and if you had an update yeah. on the uh, that convoy, uh, please provide it. But Russia has made some advances in the south, some of the port cities. Give us the latest as to what's going on there. How concerning is that? They, uh, they have made more geographic progress in the, in the south, uh, certainly coming out of Crimea. They seem to have sort of forked off out of coming out of Crimea, one to the northeast towards Mariupol. And as I think you just, in the segment before me, you talked about how uh, the mayor of Mariupol says they're, they're being shelled. Uh, we think that the Russians are coming at Mariupol from two directions, from the, from the southeast direction along that coast of the Sea of Azov, but also coming down north out of Donetsk. They want to surround and circle Mariupol. We know that that is a population center that they want. Want, uh, and they are attacking it now. Uh, they have also moved to the northwest out of Crimea towards that town of Kherson. Uh, we can't dispute any of the accounts coming out of there that the Russians actually hold Kherson. Uh, that cer certainly seems to be the indication. And now we think they're going to move uh, northwest uh, out of Kherson to try to encircle Odessa. They've got ships in the Black Sea. We haven't seen any maritime moves on Odessa, but it certainly uh, seems to be what they are considering doing. It would make sense that if they did that, they would also try to come up from the from on the on a ground perspective, coming down from uh, from the north, and that appears to be what they're trying to do, or why they went through Kursan. So they've had more progress in the south, but in the north they continue to be frustrated. Uh, they're not making as much progress on major uh, population centers. Certainly not Kiev, not Kharkiv, not a, a town called Cherniv, where they're trying to surround and encircle and bombard. That convoy that we talked about also has been stalled and slowed. And quite frankly, a big reason for that has been the Ukrainian resistance. They were able to hit some of those lead vehicles and get it to stop. Uh, Pentagon Press Secretary, retired Rear Admiral John Kirby, thank you. You do a great job explaining this difficult situation. We appreciate it. Earlier, Joe mentioned the scenes in Berlin of Germans welcoming displaced Ukrainians into their country. 
Our colleague at Sky News, correspondent Sadia Chowdhury, has the story. German hospitality that matches German efficiency. And when the two come together, the result is this. A fully organized reception area here at Berlin Station for the hundreds of Ukrainian refugees arriving from the Poland-Ukraine border. Like Anastasia, whose journey has already taken nearly 100 hours. I, I came with my, with my mother and uh, now we feel uh, like we are homeless. We exa exactly, we are homeless in this moment and we should handle basic things. Uh, we have no stuff, we have no money, we have no anything now. In scenes reminiscent of seven years ago when Germans lined stations to welcome Syrian refugees, Berlin Central is paved with donations, clothes, toys, hot drinks. A million or so refugees have already crossed from Ukraine into the European Union in eastern Poland, Slovakia and Hungary and northern Romania. In Germany it started as a trickle of a few hundred a day. It's now grown into a steady flow of more than a thousand people. We have to run into the basement once or twice a day due to airstrikes. Nobody knows when it happens, so you have to have everything ready. Documents, food, and that's not a life. The Deutsche Bahn train company has made travel free for refugees coming from Poland and around the country. A small gesture perhaps, but one that offers significant relief. The notorious hacking group Anonymous has declared war on Russia and is targeting Russian websites. The group that has also targeted U.S. sites in the past now says Putin's regime is fair game. Joining us now, NBC News correspondent Tom Costello. Tom, what more can you tell us? Well, you know, for years, the U.S. has accused the Russian government of cyber attacks, sometimes working alongside Russian cyber criminals. But now Russia is on the crosshairs. And before you celebrate, think about how quickly this could snowball into an all-out global cyber war. This is a message to Vladimir Putin from Anonymous. The group calls itself Anonymous. Unaffiliated hackers around the world now putting Russia in the crosshairs. Members of Anonymous have declared cyber war against your aggressive regime. They claim they've already targeted more than 1,500 Russian websites, including Kremlin-controlled news agencies, the Ministry of Defense and Space Agency, Russian oil companies, Internet providers, even TV channels. Their call uh, to fight in the cyberspace has resulted in a lot of websites not being available, some websites going down, and a lot of records, uh, you know, Russian government, Russian military records being dumped out under the Internet. U.S. officials confirm they've seen evidence of the anonymous hack after Russia launched a cyber and ground offensive against Ukraine. But the real risk to Russia long term is the canceling of their access to Internet infrastructure as private sector companies decide that they're going to delist or no longer carry their traffic. Cutting off Russia from the world would also deprive everyday Russians of access to outside news and information. And cyber pros worry Russia may view the anonymous hacks as Western attacks and target U.S. government and company sites. U.S. Cybersecurity Director Jen Easterly. How at risk is, this, is the average American or that very small business owner? Everybody's at risk, which is why at the end of the day, they need to take the steps to protect their systems, their networks, and their data. 
This can happen to anyone. There is no one that is immune from potentially getting hacked. The cybersecurity basics never click on suspicious emails or links. Use complicated passwords and multi-step authentication. Back up your computers and keep security software up to date. This basically ensures that he can log in even when the password is changed. Israeli firm CyberBit uses real-world attacks to train American companies to defend themselves. The questions organizations need to ask themselves is not if they are going to be hit, but when they are going to be hit. As for Anonymous, now targeting Russia. We are anonymous. We are legion. Expect us. Russia has always been perceived as the cyber attacker, and now they're on the receiving end. Instead of always being on offense, they also got to be on defense. And that really lowers their capability in some ways to also do attacks. Yeah, that's the concern here. The cyber battlefield seems to be expanding by the day. You know, we've already seen U.S. oil pipelines, food supplies, hospitals, banks attacked in recent years. Experts say they could be targeted again, but also electric grids, dams, water systems. Everything is a potential target right now. By the way, the U.S. Cybersecurity Agency, if you're a small business or just a typical American family, they have great resources online how to protect yourself. Still 
Man, now a distinguished research fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute, also a national security analyst for NBC News and MSNBC. And Clint, let's start with that nuclear power plant. Show us where it is and the significance of its location. That's right, Joe. Zaporizhia is what we were talking about last night. A few key notes about it. We saw some video that you might have seen out on social media of a firefight in and around those reactors. What do the Russians want to do? They want to take control of the entire energy sector because they can use that when they're doing siege warfare like we're seeing in many cities around Ukraine to take control essentially the power sources. But separately, the more important point might be psychological, injecting fear into audiences while we're trying to get to the bottom of what happened here last night. Is it safe? I would bet that Russian disinformation broadcast back at home saying that this is the Ukrainians possibly using some sort of nuclear material or causing a blast. We saw that last last week uh, when Chernobyl was taken back. The last thing I want to add, just from a military perspective, is we keep seeing these discussions of nuclear sites. Nuclear sites also have massive railheads. If you are an invading army with large armor formations, you're bogged down logistically and you want to move things very quickly over time, taking railheads, particularly those that are outside of cities, is extremely important. So there's another logistical component for them because they are not doing well on the roads right now. The other thing that I want to bring up here is while we've talked about the first week and two days, the Russians really struggling, Ukrainians overachieving, the Russians are now using that combat power to take hold. Several things have happened over the last 48 hours. First, this unit in Crimea, this is the peninsula they seized back in 2014. It has created a land bridge to its forces here in Donbass. Those forces now are surrounding this town here of Mariupol. Mika was showing some video there. This is total war, siege warfare, indirect fire, cutting off infrastructure. These folks are in for absolute disaster right now. Separately, Hassan, that's the other breakaway Mika was talking about. Hassan is essentially the mouth of the Dnieper River as it enters into the Black Sea. And there is a bridge here in Hassan which allows the Russian military to move to the western side of Ukraine. If they can do that, they can possibly march all the way to the Moldovan border, essentially sealing off this entire area here. There would be no sea resupply. There would be no way to get logistics in, and it allows the Russians then to start using things like landing crafts to essentially bring in more forces and more quickly in the south. Bringing it back to the bigger picture, I think that's where we're at this morning. 
We've been talking a lot about the convoy that has been stuck there up in the north, but I think there's some bigger things to think about. They tried this initial move right here, trying to get into Kyiv. You might remember a failed airborne assault, which seemed to have been an attempt to take down and topple the government real early. That convoy, while bogged down, you're seeing them start to make gains in here through Chernaev. Chernaev, indirect fires, indiscriminate killing yesterday. Not particularly significant unless you're building up what we call a lodger head here. You want to take all of these rear areas, and so you probably heard Defense Press Secretary Kirby yesterday talking about these towns. If you are moving a massive army in and trying to take Kiev, you don't want to be fighting insurgents here in your rear area, that you want to secure your logistics bases. And that brings us to the end. They're now marching from the south and from the east. Their ultimate goal is to encircle Kyiv and really cut off all resupply over the ground from Poland. Clint Watts, thank you very much. ...has declared war on Russia and is targeting Russian websites. The group that has also targeted U.S. sites in the past now says Putin's regime is fair game. Joining us now, NBC News correspondent Tom Costello. Tom, what more can you tell us? Well, you know, for years, the U.S. has accused the Russian government of cyber attacks, sometimes working alongside Russian cyber criminals. But now Russia is in the crosshairs. And before you celebrate, think about how quickly this could snowball into an all-out global cyber war. This is a message to Vladimir Putin from Anonymous. The group calls itself Anonymous. Unaffiliated hackers around the world now putting Russia in the crosshairs. Members of Anonymous have declared cyber war against your aggressive regime. They claim they've already targeted more than 1,500 Russian websites, including Kremlin-controlled news agencies, the Ministry of Defense and Space Agency, Russian oil companies, Internet providers, even TV channels. Their call uh, to fight in the cyberspace has resulted in a lot of websites not being available, some websites going down, and a lot of records, uh, you know, Russian government, Russian military records being dumped out under the Internet. U.S. officials confirm they've seen evidence of the anonymous hacks after Russia launched a cyber and ground offensive against Ukraine. But the real risk to Russia long term is the canceling of their access to Internet infrastructure as private sector companies decide that they're going to delist or no longer carry their traffic. Cutting off Russia from the world would also deprive everyday Russians of access to outside news and information. And cyber pros worry Russia may view the anonymous hacks as Western attacks and target U.S. government and company sites. U.S. Cybersecurity Director Jen Easterly. How at risk is, this, is the average American or that very small business owner? Everybody's at risk which is why at the end of the day, they need to take the steps to protect their systems, their networks, and their data. This can happen to anyone. There is no one that is immune from potentially getting hacked. The cybersecurity basics never click on suspicious emails or links, use complicated passwords, and multi-step authentication. Back up your computers and keep security software up to date. This basically ensures that he can log in even when the password is changed. Israeli firm CyberBit uses real-world attacks to train American companies to defend themselves. The questions organizations need to ask themselves is not if they are going to be hit, but when they are going to be hit. As for Anonymous, now targeting Russia. We are Anonymous. We are Legion. Expect us. Russia has always been perceived as the cyber attacker, and now they're on the receiving end. 
instead of always being on offense, they also got to be on defense. And that really lowers their capability in some ways to also do attacks. Yeah, that's the concern here. The cyber battlefield seems to be expanding by the day. You know, we've already seen U.S. oil pipelines, food supplies, hospitals, banks attacked in recent years. Experts say they could be targeted again, but also electric grids, dams, water systems, everything is a potential target right now. By the way, the U.S. Cybersecurity Agency, if you're a small business or just a typical American family, they have great resources online how to protect yourself. Hey, thanks so much for watching our YouTube channel. You can follow.
nuclear plant after shelling the facility located in southern Ukraine. One of the power station's six reactors caught fire. The spokesman for the plant said the reactor is under renovation but does have nuclear fuel inside. Ukraine's foreign minister tweeted, if it blows up, it will be 10 times larger than Chernobyl. Russians must immediately cease the fire, allow firefighters to establish a security zone. The plant had been inaccessible because firefighters were being shot at. No essential equipment was damaged, and the U.N. now says no radioactive material was released. Ukrainian President Zelensky pleaded with Europeans and their leaders to, quote, wake up, saying in part, we need to stop the Russian military immediately. Scream at your politicians. Ukraine has 15 nuclear power blocks. If there is an explosion, it is the end for all of us. The end of Europe, he said. Evacuation of Europe. Only immediate actions of Europe can stop the Russian military. Do not let Europe die from a nuclear catastrophe, end quote. Zelensky also spoke with President Biden and with British Prime Minister Boris Johnson, who said he will call for an emergency meeting now of the U.N. Security Council this morning. NBC News Chief Foreign Correspondent Richard Engel joins us from Kiev. Richard, good morning. What more can you tell us about this nuclear plant and how close to danger Ukraine and all of Europe really was last night? So, uh, first, before I get to that, I'm at the train station here in Kiev, and we've been seeing people rushing to this station this morning, trying to get out of the city. Uh, there is some confusion here. The people aren't paying any tickets, so the trains are just running, but it's not. A, people aren't sure exactly uh, where the trains are running, which tracks they should get on, which trains they should get on, but they're arriving with their families, with their parents, with their grandparents, with their pets, and they are getting on any train that will go west. Now, this is the second time that we've had a nuclear scare throughout this conflict. The first time was when there was fighting by the Chernobyl site, which was the, the former reactor, of course, that suffered that terrible meltdown. Uh, and now there was fighting at a working nuclear power plant and, the, and a building going uh, going up in flames uh, right next to it. Uh, according to uh, U.S. officials, they're not seeing any radiation leak, but Ukrainian officials are warning that every time there is fighting by one of these nuclear facilities and you have uh, you have close fighting, artillery coming in, uh, that there is a serious danger that one of the facilities could be, could be damaged, destroyed, and it would have consequences for this country and, and all around the world, particularly Europe. And yeah, as you say, Richard, it was an adjacent building. The fire has been put out, but perilously close to that nuclear reactor. And yesterday, Richard, President Zelensky held a press conference. He called for a face-to-face -face meeting with Vladimir Putin. I want to show our viewers what you asked Zelensky. You had just mentioned that you want to talk to Vladimir Putin. Vladimir Putin has so far not been willing to meet with him. Do you have a message for him now? that Ukrainian cities are under attack. It's not about I want to talk with Putin. I think I have to talk with Putin. The world has to talk with Putin because there are no other ways to stop this war. That's why I have to. First of all, Richard, extraordinary circumstances. There are a sandbag bunker for that press conference. Do you expect Zelensky to actually meet with Vladimir Putin? Well, Vladimir Putin has made it quite clear he is not interested in meeting with Zelensky, that he considers Zelensky a neo-Nazi fascist leader. 
which is a, a particularly insulting, uh, uh, insulting remark considering Zelensky is Jewish. And just the other day, one of the Russian attacks fell on a, uh, on a site where 33,000 Jews were murdered during the Holocaust, a Holocaust memorial. Uh, Zelensky says he does not plan to leave this city, even as Ru Russian forces get closer. He desperately wants to meet with Putin. He said that Putin is the only person who can, uh, who can, who can end this war. But uh, when, when Putin spoke yesterday with, uh, with uh, Francis Emmanuel Macron, he made it clear that the war is going to go forward, that it is going according to plan, and that he said he will go until the end of the mission. And he's made it clear that mission is getting rid of Zelensky, not talking to him. NBC's Richard Engel live for us this morning from Ukraine's capital city. Richard, thanks so much. So, Joe, you could hear an increased urgency yesterday and last night in President Zelensky's voice around this attack at the nuclear plant. He said they're ready to not only to control nuclear power around Europe, but perhaps to shut it down and perhaps to blow it up, whether accidentally or not. That fire is out, thank goodness, at the nuclear plant. But you can hear that Zelensky is begging now for more help from the West. Well, Zelensky obviously terrified, as are the people in Ukraine, and I, I would guess anybody reasonable and rational in Europe and across the world also concerned about the fact that Vladimir Putin is now uh, attacking nuclear power plants. Uh, it, it is a, a frightening scenario that, that continues to escalate. Let's go over to the, the maps of the big board and talk to Clint Watts. He's there for us, a former infantryman, now a distinguished research fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute also a national security analyst for NBC News and MSNBC. And, Clint, let's start with that nuclear power plant. Show us where it is and the significance of its location. That's right, Joe. Zaporizhia is what we were talking about last night. A few key notes about it. We saw some video that you might have seen out on social media of a firefight in and around those reactors. What do the Russians want to do? They want to take control of the entire energy sector because they can use that when they're doing siege warfare like we're seeing in many cities around Ukraine to take control essentially of the power sources. But separately, the more important point might be psychological, injecting fear into audiences while we're trying to get to the bottom of what happened here last night. Is it safe? I would bet that Russian disinformation broadcast back at home is saying that this is the Ukrainians possibly using some sort of nuclear material or causing a blast. We saw that last week uh, when Chernobyl was taken back. The last thing I want to add, just from a military perspective, is we keep seeing these discussions of nuclear sites. Nuclear sites also have massive railheads. If you are an invading army with large armor formations, you're bogged down logistically and you want to move things very quickly over time, taking railheads, particularly those that are outside of cities, is extremely important. So there's another logistical component for them because they are not doing well on the roads right now. The other thing that I want to bring up here is while we've talked about the first week in two days, the Russians really struggling, Ukrainians overachieving, the Russians are now using that combat power to take hold. Several things have happened over the last 48 hours. First, this unit in Crimea, this is the peninsula they seized back in 2014, it has created a land bridge to its forces here in Donbass. Those forces now are surrounding this town here of Mariupol. Mika was showing some video there. This is total war, siege warfare, indirect fire, cutting off infrastructure. These folks are in for absolute disaster right now. 
separately, her son, that's the other breakaway Mika was talking about. Her son is essentially the mouth of the Dnieper River as it enters into the Black Sea. And there is a bridge here in her son, which allows the Russian military to move to the western side of Ukraine. If they can do that, they can possibly march all the way to the Moldovan border, essentially sealing off this entire area here. There would be no sea resupply. There would be no way to get logistics in. And it allows the Russians then to start using things like landing crafts to essentially bring in more forces and more quickly in the south. Bringing it back to the bigger picture, I think that's where we're at this morning. We've been talking a lot about the convoy that has been stuck there up in the north, but I think there's some bigger things to think about. They tried this initial move right here, trying to get into Kyiv. You might remember a failed airborne assault, which seemed to have been attempt to take down and topple the government real early. That convoy, while bogged down, you're seeing them start to make gains in here through Chernaev. Chernaev, indirect fires, indiscriminate killing yesterday. Not particularly significant unless you're building up what we call a loggerhead here. You want to take all of these rear areas. And so you probably heard Defense Press Secretary Kirby yesterday talking about these towns. If you are moving a massive army in and trying to take Kiev, you don't want to be fighting insurgents here in your rear area, that you want to secure your logistics bases. And that brings us to the end. They're now marching from the south and from the east. Their ultimate goal is to encircle Kiev and really cut off all resupply over the ground from Poland. So, Clint, let me ask you, in, in the, the areas that are shaded pink, and I do find that an interesting color scheme for Russian troops, uh, in, uh, in the pink areas, uh, is that, are those areas where the Russians have actually moved through, Russian troops have moved through, or would you say that those shaded areas are areas that they effectively control? Because, as you know, there's a big difference. We, we certainly found it found it out in Vietnam and then in Iraq and Afghanistan. It's one thing for your troops to move through and win battles and keep moving to uh, a city. It's quite another to control it. What, what, what are we looking at here when we look at this map? Yeah, severe miscalculation by the Russian army, Joe, across the board. They tried to move in with a very daunting sort of blitzkrieg-type attack. They didn't integrate their fires and their air, and they did not secure the rear area. These cities are going to be filled with insurgents. And interesting, I was on a discussion with John Noggle, who wrote the counterinsurgency manual. He mentioned hundreds of thousands of troops would be needed to secure this, which means that Putin's plan, while audacious, is highly flawed. What well, he's going to be and, facing and Clint, is... Clint, I, and that's what I wanted to, to bring up to you. And let's just, again, this... It's not wishful thinking. I know there's a lot of wishful thinking in the early days of the war. But can you explain to our viewers how there just are not enough? There are enough Russian troops to, to, to blow up buildings and, and, and kill a lot of people, cause a lot of misery. But they do not have enough troops to control a country this size, do they? Wherever they go, they're going to have insurgencies uh, coming up behind them, around them. Uh, unless they flatten the entire country. And even then, you somehow feel, you, you somehow sense the Ukrainians are going to figure out a way to do what the Iraqis did to us in 2004, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9. Absolutely correct. I mean, in comparison, invasions are easy. Counterinsurgencies are extremely difficult. They found this out in Afghanistan. We found it out in Iraq. When you watch what they're doing here, they're trying to essentially just destroy major population centers in hopes of getting rid of any potential future insurgents. You heard negotiations yesterday about essentially creating pathways for people to leave the city. From the Russians' perspective, 
the fewer people that are in the city, the fewer potential insurgents over the horizon. And then they can just use direct fires, indirect fires to just cripple the, these cities. But that will not work. What we've seen from the Ukrainian people is this is an insurgent force. Not only are they very well trained, much better than we thought, they now are getting weapons like stingers, javelins, the in-law. All these anti-tank weapons are going in. Russian forces now also control Europe's largest nuclear plant after shelling the facility, which is located in southern Ukraine. A building adjacent to a nuclear reactor caught fire. It since has been extinguished. The plant had been inaccessible because firefighters were being shot at. No essential equipment was damaged, and the U.N. says no radioactive material was released. The U.S. Embassy in Kyiv tweeted just moments ago, quote, it is a war crime to attack a nuclear power plant. Joining us now, Pentagon Press Secretary, retired Rear Admiral John Kirby. Admiral Kirby, thanks so much for being with us this morning. Let's start right there with the attack on the nuclear power plant. Uh, do you have an assessment of the damage there? Is there any leaking radioactive material? And what do you say to Russia for going after the, Europe's largest nuclear power plant or any power plant? We're working closely with the Department of Energy, uh, Willie, to assess uh, the damage. Uh, we would agree with assessments so far this morning uh, that there is no, uh, there's no leakage, there's no radioactive leakage right now, and that the, the the fire's out and the damage seems to have been fairly limited. But to your other question, this speaks to the recklessness uh, and the, the dangerous atmosphere inside Ukraine caused by this unprovoked uh, war of aggression, this unprovoked invasion by Russia, and the fact that regardless of how it's started, uh, that the Russians have not been very discriminate in, in the way they're going about uh, this military campaign. Uh, they, they, don't, they aren't known for, for accuracy and for precision, uh, and, and certainly this is an example of just how dangerous this can get, not just for uh, the people of Ukraine, but for the European continent. So, Admiral Kirby, there have been calls, increased calls just in the last couple of days as we've watched Russia now continue its slow push, now accelerating across uh, Ukraine for the United States to do more. Can you speak to what's happening right now? And is there a possibility that there could be stepped up military intervention from the United States as this seems to get worse by the day? Sure. Let me tell you what we are doing now, because it's a great question, Willie. We are expediting uh, the shipment of additional uh, security assistance to the Ukrainian armed forces. In just the last few days, more and more uh, ammunition, more and more weapon systems. Uh, we have helped flow into that country. We're also helping coordinate uh, the, the flow of shipments from other countries as well. Uh, there's a, this is a real international effort, and, and we know that, uh, that that material is getting into the right hands. Secretary Austin spoke to his Ukrainian counterpart just a couple of days ago, and, and Mr. Reznikov made it clear not only that they appreciate this material, but that, that it is being used, it is getting into uh, the, the hands of the of Ukrainian armed forces and, and fighters there. So we know that's happening, and we're going to continue to look for ways to accelerate that aid and assistance. The other thing we're doing is making sure that we can bolster the NATO alliance. We're, we're flowing additional forces to NATO's eastern flank, both in the north and in the south, and we're going to look for ways to continue to do that as needed. We're going to make it very clear to Mr. Putin uh, that we will defend every inch of NATO territory. The other thing that we've done in just the last couple of days, Willie, is stand up a deconfliction channel. It's headquartered there uh, in Germany at the European Command Headquarters. But we now have a direct way of communicating with the Russian Ministry of Defense on a daily basis in case there's a need to deconflict things like airspace. So, so uh, Admiral, uh, thanks so much for being with us. I wanted to ask you, you say every inch 
of of, yep. of, of, of soil. Uh, so mm-hmm. I, I, I had a, a former administration official tell me that uh, with the United States seeming to be cowed by every uh, nuclear threat uh, that Putin makes it right now it's Ukraine. But what are we going to do when Putin says he's going into Estonia next or he's going into Latvia or he's going into Lithuania? I have reporters on the ground saying that people in those countries are frightened. They don't they think that we might stand up for Poland, but we won't stand up for them. Will you make a clear and unequivocal uh, a statement here today uh, uh, that that based on the policy, the Pentagon policy, the White House policy, the administration policy, that an attack on Estonia is an attack on NATO and will be met with a full force uh, of, 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 of NATO's military might. We take our commitment to Article 5 very seriously. An attack on one NATO nation is an attack on all. And that is why we have continued to flow additional resources and capabilities to NATO's eastern flank to be able to do that if needed. Now, hopefully it won't come to that, Joe. uh, But if a NATO country is attacked, the United States will absolutely come to the defense of it. You know, Joe, that uh, the first and only time uh, that Article 5 was invoked was in our defense on 9-11, where NATO came to our defense. Uh, we, We remember that here at the Pentagon. And we're absolutely committed to that going forward. Again, hopefully it won't come to that. And one of the reasons why we stood up this deconfliction channel is to make sure we have a direct line to the Russian Ministry of Defense so that they know and they can see very clearly and plainly how seriously we take that commitment. So, Admiral, a similar question that I asked to Admiral Stavridis, but you talk about the uh, resources that are coming in, uh, extra supplies, aid, money, weapons. Will there ever be enough in the hands of Ukrainians to make them capable of stabilizing their country, or are we just watching Ukraine's demise in slow motion? We're going to continue to flow as much security assistance to Ukraine as we can, as fast as we can. Uh, and I would note, and I, I think Admiral Stavridis talked about this as well, the Ukrainians are fighting back. They are defending their country, and they're doing it quite effectively. Uh, the Russian advance up in the north continues to be stalled and frustrated by Ukrainian resistance, which has been extraordinarily effective. Now, look, we all have to be clear-eyed about this. The Russians have the numbers advantage. They have more capability available to them. They built it up over the last several months, more than 150,000 troops, more than 120 battalion tactical groups. Uh, They have a lot uh, of advantages right now. Uh, So we're going to do whatever we can to continue to make sure that Ukraine can defend itself. Uh, Do do we expect more troop movements uh, just as a show of force following up on uh, the last question? uh, uh, Sure. Poland, Lithuania. Latvia, Estonia. Are we are, are we expecting to send more forces in there just just as a show of support? Well, President Biden has already ordered uh, more than 10,000 troops just from the United States to go to Europe to bolster that eastern flank. We certainly wouldn't take off the table that there could be additional deployments of U.S. troops from the United States to NATO territory. The other thing we're doing, Joe, is moving stuff around. So we've taken troops out of Germany and we moved them uh, down to Romania. We've moved some of them up to the Baltics. Aircraft. There are dozens now of NATO aircraft doing policing missions over NATO airspace, and that includes additional fighter strike fighter aircraft from the United States, some from the Navy, uh, some from the Air Force, F-35s. Uh, we're very much in the air over the airspace, and we're going to continue to talk to our allies about additional capabilities they might need. I want to stress that this is very much about NATO. It's about the West. It's about this alliance. It's not just about the United States. 
Hey, Admiral, good morning. It's John Flamir. You mentioned the stalled uh, Russian movements up north, and if you had an update yeah. on the, uh, that convoy, uh, please provide it. But Russia has made some advances in the south, some of the port cities. Give us the latest as to what's going on there. How concerning is that? They, uh, they have made more geographic progress in the, in the south, uh, certainly coming out of Crimea. They seem to have sort of forked off out of coming out of Crimea, one to the northeast towards Mariupol. And as I think you just, in, in the segment before me, you talked about how uh, the mayor of Mariupol says they're, uh, they're being shelled. Uh, that we think that the Russians are coming at Mariupol from two directions, from the, from the southeast direction along that coast of the Sea of Azov, but also coming down north out of Donetsk. They want to surround and circle Mariupol. We know that that is a population center that they want want, uh, and they are attacking it now. Uh, they have also moved to the northwest out of Crimea, towards that town of Kherson. Uh, we can't dispute any of the accounts coming out of there that the Russians actually hold Kherson. Uh, that cer certainly seems to be the indication. And now we think they're going to move uh, northwest uh, out of Kherson to try to encircle Odessa. They've got ships in the Black Sea. We haven't seen any maritime moves on Odessa, but it certainly uh, seems to be what they are considering doing. It would make sense that if they did that, they would also try to come up from the from on the on a ground perspective coming down from uh, from the north and that appears to be what they're trying to do or why they went through Kursan. so they've had more progress in the south but in the north they continue to be frustrated uh, they're not making as much progress on major uh, population centers certainly not Kiev not Kharkiv not a, a town called Cherniv where they're trying to surround and encircle and bombard mm -hmm. that convoy that we talked about also has been stalled and slowed and quite frankly a big reason for that has been the Ukrainian resistance they were able to hit some of those lead vehicles and get it to stop. Uh, Pentagon Press Secretary, retired Rear Admiral John Kirby, thank you. You do a great job explaining this difficult situation. We appreciate it. Earlier, Joe mentioned the scenes in Berlin of Germans welcoming displaced Ukrainians into their country. Our colleague at Sky News correspondent Sadia Chowdhury has the story. German hospitality that matches German efficiency. And when the two come together, the result is this. A fully organized reception area here at Berlin Station for the hundreds of Ukrainian refugees arriving from the Poland-Ukraine border. Like Anastasia, whose journey has already taken nearly 100 hours. I came with my, with my mother and uh, now we feel uh, like we are homeless, we ex exactly we are homeless in this moment and we should handle basic things, uh, we have no stuff, we have no money, we have no anything now. In scenes reminiscent of seven years ago when Germans lined stations to welcome Syrian refugees, Berlin Central is paved with donations, clothes, toys, hot drinks. A million or so refugees have already crossed from Ukraine into the European Union in eastern Poland, Slovakia and Hungary and northern Romania. In Germany it started as a trickle of a few hundred a day. It's now grown into a steady flow of more than a thousand people. We have to run into the basement once or twice a day due to airstrikes. Nobody knows when it happens, so you have to have everything ready. Documents, food, and that's not a life. The Deutsche Bahn train company has made travel free for refugees coming from Poland and around the country. A small gesture, perhaps, but one that offers significant relief. 
The notorious hacking group Anonymous has declared war on Russia and is targeting Russian websites. The group that has also targeted U.S. sites in the past now says Putin's regime is fair game. Joining us now, NBC News correspondent Tom Costello. Tom, what more can you tell us? Well, you know, for years, the U.S. has accused the Russian government of cyber attacks, sometimes working alongside Russian cyber criminals. But now Russia is on the crosshairs. And before you celebrate, think about how quickly this could snowball into an all-out global cyber war. This is a message to Vladimir Putin from Anonymous. The group calls itself Anonymous. Unaffiliated hackers around the world now putting Russia in the crosshairs. Members of Anonymous have declared cyber war against your aggressive regime. They claim they've already targeted more than 1,500 Russian websites, including Kremlin-controlled news agencies, the Ministry of Defense and Space Agency, Russian oil companies, Internet providers, even TV channels. Their call uh, to fight in the cyberspace has resulted in a lot of websites not being available, some websites going down, and a lot of records, uh, you know, Russian government, Russian military records being dumped out under the Internet. U.S. officials confirm they've seen evidence of the anonymous hacks after Russia launched a cyber and ground offensive against Ukraine. But the real risk to Russia long term is the canceling of their access to Internet infrastructure as private sector companies decide that they're going to delist or no longer carry their traffic. Cutting off Russia from the world would also deprive everyday Russians of access to outside news and information. And cyber pros worry Russia may view the anonymous hacks as Western attacks and target U.S. government and company sites. U.S. Cybersecurity Director Jen Easterly. How at risk is, this, is the average American or that very small business owner? Everybody's at risk which is why at the end of the day, they need to take the steps to protect their systems, their networks, and their data. This can happen to anyone. There is no one that is immune from potentially getting hacked. The cybersecurity basics never click on suspicious emails or links, use complicated passwords, and multi-step authentication. Back up your computers and keep security software up to date. This basically ensures that he can log in even when the password is changed. Israeli firm CyberBit uses real-world attacks to train American companies to defend themselves. The questions organizations need to ask themselves is not if they are going to be hit, but when they are going to be hit. As for Anonymous now targeting Russia. We are Anonymous. We are Legion. Expect us. Russia has always been perceived as the cyber attacker, and now they're on the receiving end. Instead of always being on offense, they also got to be on defense. And that really lowers their capability in some ways to also do attacks. Yeah, that's the concern here. The cyber battlefield seems to be expanding by the day. You know, we've already seen U.S. oil pipelines, food supplies, hospitals, banks attacked in recent years. Experts say they could be targeted again, but also electric grids, dams, water systems. Everything is a potential target right now. By the way, the U.S. Cybersecurity Agency, if you're a small business or just a typical American family, they have great resources online how to protect yourself. Let's get 
Right back to the ground now in Ukraine. One of the country's most beloved artists, singer and activist, Slava Varkachuk, joins us now. Uh, we see you're driving. If you can, not, if you can describe not, the situation there. I'm not driving there. now. Hi. Oh. Hi. Hi. <laughs> I'm not driving right now. Sadly, I'm trying to talk to you because it's dangerous to drive. But thanks for having me here. And frankly speaking, situation is, is very bad because we never, we couldn't expect that our neighbor would impose such a brutal war against us. They're killing children, women, smashing the cities. They're, it's, it's awful. I cannot say anything that what we see, it's the biggest crime since World War II. And I'm not exaggerating. I mean it. Well, Slava, what we've heard uh, in the United States that maybe we didn't understand as much before, but we do now, is just how close Ukrainians have been with Russians, uh, how uh, there so many Russians live inside the country. We were always wondering, uh, you'd have stories of grandmothers going up and confronting uh, uh, Russian soldiers, and the Russian soldiers politely asking them to move out of the way. We didn't really understand it until we got a better grasp of just how close your two countries have been how many uh, no, the number I, of russians that, that live in ukraine i can tell you the fundamental difference though genetically you may you may find resemblance but ukrainians in blood they have freedom and this is what uh, differs us from russians because they actually always you know tended to be autocratic dictatorial state uh, in every uh, times of history ukrainians are more like americans so we like freedom, we like elections, we like arguing, but, but this is what, what makes us strong. And we are now fighting for our values, freedom, dignity, and our land and our children's future. And we are fighting and we will be fighting till the end. Slava, we appreciate you pulling over the side of the road. I know how dangerous it is there right now. And this cross-country journey you're making to lift the morale of troops and your fellow countrymen as one of the country's best-known people. But what do you want Americans watching right now to know about what's happening on the ground and what more you'd like to get out of the world, the, the, including the, the United States? The, the, most, uh, the most important thing, first of all, I want to say thank you to all american people and to american you know politicians and government by uh, by by bipartisan support of ukraine it's very important but now we need more you've seen how close to a nuclear disaster we've been this morning in ukraine morning in your evening uh, thanks god nothing really bad happened but we are very close to that so we need to stop it now and that's why we need non-flight zone no matter how it's controversial because in my, in my opinion, uh, to impose, uh, some say that imposing a non-flight zone over Ukraine can, can bring uh, the world closer to World War III. I'm convinced that the opposite is the truth, that if you don't do that and Putin wins, then he'll go further. And that will be the disaster for the whole world. And everybody will regret that they didn't stop it before. It looks like 1938 now. So we, we urge the whole world non-flight zone, air missiles, strong sanctions. We need to stop them now. Otherwise, it'll be too late. Not the only United for Ukraine, says, but for everybody. Yeah, the United States says for now there will be no no-fly zone. The Secretary General of NATO just a few minutes ago reiterated that NATO is not going to intervene militarily at this point, but it did call for Russia to withdraw. If there is no military intervention from NATO countries, from the United States, from the West, what we is your planes. fear of the weeks and the months to come? We need planes. We need air defense system. You can at least you can give this 
and then we're going to fight. Because Ukrainians are going to fight till the end. And I'm sure that finally we're going to win because we're on our own, own land and it's, it's just for us. You fought your independence war. It is independence war for Ukraine, what we have now. We, we, you were talking about uh, that, that Ukrainians, uh, much like Americans, love freedom uh, and, and, and expect freedom for themselves. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about the Ukrainian character that so many Americans have been so moved by? I had, I had one friend tell me, my God, they look like they're Texans. As if, you know, nobody would want to invade Texas. Well, nobody wants to invade. And by the way, that is when it comes to war. That's a compliment. Don't mess with Texas. Don't mess with Ukraine. Uh, I agree that Ukrainians are tough. We are very peaceful, but tough. We never fought anybody's, uh, uh, we, we never conquered any country. We've been conquered by others, but now it's our time. We, we will not allow to do it once again. So we will fight like crazy. Everybody, men and women, territorial defense, army. Uh, you know, uh, grannies are doing Molotov cocktails. You can see it everywhere. You see it in Ukraine no. because we know it's it's now and ever, and we will do it. And one thing we want from the civilized world is not only be impressed by us, but if you are impressed by us, just help us. Uh, some, if if we were not fighting, then we could understand somebody's impartiality. But we really fight, and we deserve it. Slava Vakarchuk, thank you so much. Uh, we hear you. We are praying for Ukraine. Thank you very Please much. Stay safe. Thank you. Thank you. Thank Glory you very to much. Ukraine and God bless America. Thank you. Hey, thanks so much for watching our YouTube channel. You can follow up on today's top stories and breaking news or catch up on your favorite MSNBC.
was a former lieutenant commander in the United States Navy Reserve. Senator, thanks so much for being with us. Um, let's start right there with what is happening and what has not yet happened in terms of cyber warfare. Obviously, so much attention on what we can see in front of us with the attack by Russia on Ukraine. What's happening behind the scenes, and do you expect Russia to step up its cyber attacks? Well, it, it's hard to know uh, what they will do. And I think, uh, as was mentioned, it, it is surprising we haven't seen more cyber attacks because that uh, tended to be part of their operational model. And you would do that in any warfare. Cyber tends to be the, the first strike that uh, an enemy will use. Uh, we haven't seen it to the extent that we would expect, but I think we should uh, not in any way let our guard down. They are very sophisticated. Uh, we are focused on it. I had a discussion again even last night with the Secretary of Homeland Security, Secretary Mayorkas, uh, that they are working uh, on all levels to make sure that our cyber protection is strong uh, and as resilient as possible. So let's bring this down to the ground level, Senator. What would happen? What is an example of the kind of cyber attack that could have an impact that could tip the balance in a war like this? And if Russia did carry out something like that, what could Ukraine, perhaps partnered with the United States, do in response? Well, certainly uh, the critical infrastructure is, is always the Achilles heel of, of any society. So you can see massive attacks uh, against communication systems, uh, uh, fuel systems. Uh, we saw what a ransomware attack did in the United States uh, earlier when we had a major pipeline actually shut down for a period of time to deal with a ransomware attack. So you can really cripple uh, an economy pretty quickly with cyber. And the danger when, uh, if the, the Russians were to do that in Ukraine, if you're injecting malware into these systems, there isn't necessarily a good way to actually contain that. That malware can go to other places. You can hit systems all around the world. Uh, certainly other NATO countries could be impacted by that uh, malware that uh, uh, isn't going to be contained within the borders uh, of Ukraine. And that's what makes it so dangerous. So we could see this impact uh, spread very quickly. It is a it is a powerful weapon and oftentimes not very easy to control uh, if you're not careful. And I would not bet on the Russians being that careful. In fact, they, they may and focus are, on you know, the United States. And what are the capabilities then as a counterattack? We're talking about cyber warfare here. So let's say that Russia shuts down the electrical grid. It does some of those infrastructure attacks that you're talking about. The United States, as we pointed out, and as Andrea pointed out in the piece, has significant capabilities to strike back. What might it do in response? Well, I, I don't want to speculate on that because, uh, you know, you have to obviously take a look at what that attack is and then figure out a countermeasure to, to let the, know the Russians know they can't get away with that. Uh, but clearly, uh, we do have significant capabilities, uh, but uh, clearly we don't want to talk about the specifics of those capabilities uh, in this type of setting. Senator Peters, good morning. It's John Lemire. Uh, two notes for you. First, you've mentioned that it has been a surprise that Russia hasn't done war. Is, is there a sense that they're waiting for that in reserve? That could be a next front for them, uh, hacking cyber attacks perhaps? And then secondly, tell us about the new cybersecurity bill and why it would be important, particularly at a time of conflict like this. Yeah, it's really difficult to know why they haven't done it. Uh, it's perhaps, I mean, we can speculate as to why it wasn't uh, as robust as you would anticipate. Perhaps they thought they could act in a kinetic fashion with what they were doing on the ground and move swiftly through Ukraine. Clearly that hasn't happened. They've been bogged down, and uh, we certainly salute the U Ukrainian people for their incredible courage uh, and defense, and uh, that's probably surprised uh, the Russians. So that may have messed up some of their plans. But certainly they have that in reserve and we should be prepared for it. And that's why the legislation uh, that uh, I've sponsored and we've passed through the, the Senate uh, 
to deal with incident reporting is so critical. This, this is legislation that will require uh, critical infrastructure in this country to report to CISA, our Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency within the Department of Homeland Security, when they actually have a, a cyber attack. Uh, we believe we're not getting all that information, and we have to know when attacks are occurring in our country so we can prepare and, uh, importantly, warn others that this is a type of attack that we're undergoing. Uh, it's, it's like any kind of uh, battlefield. The first thing you need to know is situational awareness. You need to know where the enemy is. What are, what weapons do they have? Where you are? What's the geography? We need the same kind of information in the cyber domain, and that's why this incident reporting legislation is absolutely critical, uh, why our national security folks thought this is essential cybersecurity legislation, and why we're so happy it's passed unanimously out of the Senate this last week, and we're hoping to move it quickly through the House so that we can continue to bolster our cyber defenses. Yeah, bipartisan bill, we should point out, co-sponsored with Rob Portman, Senator of Ohio, that passed through and now, as you say, moves to the House. Chairman of the Homeland Security Committee, Senator Gary Peters of Michigan. Senator, thanks so much for your time this morning. We appreciate it. former U.S. Ambassador to Russia, Michael McFaul. And Ambassador, just first off, your reaction to Russia's uh, strike on that nuclear power plant, obviously disaster averted, but Ukraine's uh, foreign minister said this could have been 10 times worse than Chernobyl. Well, I agree with the colleagues you had on earlier today. Uh, this is outrageous. This is reckless, uh, super scary. Um, and the fact that Putin is willing to do this, I think, should sober up everybody. Uh, we've been debating what, what his intentions are and what he's going to do for many weeks now. And every time we hope that he's going to do something more cautious, remember the debate we had before he invaded, right? right? Lots of people were hoping for small strikes. Remember that land bridge we talked about for ad nauseum, that he's just going to do that. That's all he wanted, the independent republics. Uh, every time... We have these debates. He surprises us by doing even more reckless, radical kinds of things. And as he increasingly uh, is feeling pressure at home because of the sanctions uh, that we're putting on him, and he is seeing that this war is not going the way he wanted to, we should expect more of this erratic behavior. To that point, I feel like some of these diplomatic cliches have become really outdated, but is there any path for Putin to go backwards, to de-escalate, to get out of this without making the situation 10 times worse? Well, of course, the Biden administration, from what I understand, I do interact with them frequently, are doing anything they can uh, to create those conditions. Uh, the goal here is peace. Uh, the goal here is the end of this war. The goal is to have those Russian soldiers go home. Uh, and so if Mr. Putin is willing to negotiate that, uh, I think the, the, the Biden administration and other leaders around the world would lift sanctions and that kind of uh, trade would be available. Uh, I just don't see anything that Putin has said uh, in the last several weeks, and most certainly not in the last eight or nine days, that suggests that he wants those kinds of off ramps, right? Instead, Agreed. he just doubles down on what he said at the beginning of the war. I'm going to destroy the Ukrainian military and I'm going to uh, carry out denazification. That is regime change. That is uh, what he stated his goal is. And so far, there's no evidence that is, uh, suggests that he has rethought those objectives. 
Biden. Well, and speaking of regime change here in this country, we've had Senator Lindsey Graham, who last night, again this morning, uh, appeared to suggest that Putin ought to be assassinated or overthrown. He speculated about if there's a Brutus-like figure in Russia who could who could end this. I wonder what you think of language like that with tensions so high, and what will the Kremlin do with uh, an American politician using that kind of language? Well, you know, when we have our analytic hats on off the record, we can talk about different scenarios Mm -hmm. uh, about how these things happen. In fact, I'm about to go teach my class on political mobilization and and democratic breakthroughs uh, right after we're done talking. Right. But it is not appropriate to talk about those things in public just for a very simple reason. Uh, That quote will be quoted on Russian national television ad nauseum, and it will reinforce what Putin tells his people is that he is fighting us in Ukraine. I think people really need to understand that this is just a proxy war for his fight against us. That's the way he frames this. The regime there is just the puppet American regime uh, put in place by us. And so those kinds of quips just help him with him explaining the war at home and doing that at the same time as you just reported that the information space in Russia is increasingly closing. He just cut, uh, Putin just shut down Doge TV, the number one independent uh, station, uh, television station uh, in Russia. He just shut down Echo of Moscow, this iconic radio station. It's been around for a couple decades, a number one source of independent news inside Russia. He's doing that, of course, for a purpose. If the war would be going better, he wouldn't be doing that. But as those places shut down, and those are places that used to host me, by the way, uh, speaking in Russian to Russians. That has now shut down. It just uh, means that the Russian state-controlled media uh, has more control over the narrative, and they'll be broadcasting quips like that to see, see, we told you so. The Americans uh, did re- regime change in Ukraine back in 2014, and now they want to do regime change here in Russia today. 